BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My guest today is Sridhar Ramaswamy. For 15 years, he ran Google's biggest moneymaker, its advertising division. For better or worse, he revolutionized online ads. But by 2018, Ramaswamy wanted off the Death Star. He left Google, and he just launched a competing search engine. It's called Neva. It's ad-free and costs subscribers five bucks a month. This new venture raises a lot of questions for me, including whether people care enough about privacy to pay for it. Ramaswamy is betting they will. He's here to explain why. Welcome to Sway. Thank you, Kara. Delighted to be here. So, you know, this is a whole concept is basically Neva wants to slay the Google dragon because it's the only dragon around. Um, but you helped create this dragon when you were in charge of advertising there. Your co-founder at Neva, Vivek, helped monetize YouTube. And the architects of the problem are they the right people to fix it? Or is this your attempt at reparations? How do you look at it? Uh, first of all, I think that some problems are larger than any one office. And the fact that Vivek and I worked on ads doesn't mean that we should not change our minds about how we can create better products. Um, you've talked to a lot of people that, for example, have turned against social media, even though they've worked for these companies. Um, I think the question of is Neva trustworthy is something that we have to earn. I don't think anyone should simply give trust, but the fact of the matter is we know a lot about how search works. We know a lot about how ads work, and we use all of these in a completely transparent way to create a better product that we think will serve you. So you essentially are just saying you put your money where your mouth is, Um, but you had power when you were at Google. Was it impossible to use the resources there to change from within? Yeah, some changes are just hard. And this is the important thing that we all need to understand, which is that uh, it's not like there was particular malintent um, that products should go astray. But things that evolve over time, 10, 15 years, are impossible for people to predict. And some principles are foundational to a company. You cannot go against them and hope to succeed within the company. I've led a lot of transformations even within the context of Google In many ways, I was the lead player when we moved from desktop to mobile in the advertising world. That was a very hard change to pull off because people are used to certain ways of doing things. And so a product like Neva, that in many ways is the opposite of how Google search, the core business that powers Google starts, didn't really stand any chance. You can try, but it'll become a little bit like one of the Google X projects that's sort of cute, but doesn't really go anywhere. And so a clean start is essential Uh, to being able to reimagine something as foundational as search. That's a very good way of putting it. They like to put things in little buildings somewhere with adorable headquarters, and then it's small, fairly small. Did you want to be CEO of Google? Was that an aspiration for you? Uh, No, not really, you know. Your name obviously was in the list. I mean, you were at the top of that short list. uh, You know, I was one of the top executives at Google. I ran a team of over 10,000 people making over $100 billion for the company. 
that was an enormous job. But uh, I am happy to have left Google for a number of reasons. I was there for 15 years. That's just a very long time to be in one company. Yep, you said that to me. I think you said that you didn't want to be the old man left standing, essentially. I didn't really want to get to a point at Google that I no longer felt the hunger to work. Kara, like, you know, on good days, I am thrilled about Neva. On bad days, I am terrified. Who is going to pay? How do we acquire more users? How do we open up these gates that look pretty impregnable and impossible to open? But I'm incredibly thrilled that I get to work on a problem that has so much potential impact and with such an amazing group of people. So change is good. It's, uh, it's disturbing. It is uncomfortable, but it is good. Right. Sure. So you left uh, shortly after the 2017 controversy where YouTube videos of exploited children were running alongside ads. Was there something that happened? Is the timing a coincidence or did that inspire your exit? Did you just go, enough of this? I'm making nuclear weapons and I don't want to or whatever. I, you know what I mean? There's a lot of people that have those moments. Um, was there a moment for you? For me, 100%. Um, those were the things that, first of all, convinced me that I didn't want to work on ads anymore. Um, when uh, we did ads on Google search, or even when I was running the display ad ecosystem, we were very clear that being able to run ads on these platforms was a privilege. For example, we had a controversy around uh, substance abuse treatments where Google search you know, wasn't able to tell uh, who good players versus uh, not so good players was. We just withdrew from the area and said, we need to figure this out. We're just not going to show any ads. And search was big enough and powerful enough that we could make a decision like this and actually move forward without a massive controversy. Um, what was foundationally different about the YouTube ecosystem was the role that creators played. For the longest time, YouTube took this attitude of you should be able to say whatever you felt like on YouTube, it was an open platform. So they gave the illusion, like a lot of social media platforms do, that content expression on them was akin to free speech that literally anyone could say anything. They didn't really see a platform responsibility for themselves. And so what ended up happening was YouTube leadership was caught between a rock and a hard position where they had a set of very vocal creators that genuinely believed that putting up content on YouTube, that getting the content monetized was something like a free speech right. Mm -hmm. And I was dumbfounded by this. I was like, really? Like your ability to monetize content on a platform is akin to the government guaranteeing free speech for you? but that's the world that Google existed in. Um, this may change very hard. We had a set of advertisers that said, I want no part of being next to bad content on YouTube. And then you had a set of creators that went, what do you mean we can't say whatever we feel like just because you find it objectionable should we not be able to say it? It became an impossible problem to solve. Um, and that was part of the conflict for advertising because we were seen as supporting all kinds of actors, some of whom were very disreputable. Um, and uh, to be the head of the team that was supporting monetization was just not something that I was comfortable with. That combined with the fact that I had been there for 15 years just made me say, okay, time to press the reset button, time to start over. So what, what's your relationship with Google right now? Do they speak to you? Did they, were they angry that you did this or just like, well, good luck? I mean, Google is, first of all, it's not a single person, right? It is literally thousands upon yeah. thousands. All yeah. right, Sundar Pichai, your old boss, Sundar Pichai. Um, you know, we used to see each other at social events, but there's not been much by way of social events in the last 18 months. So there's not been much reason for a conversation. Um, I'm respectful of Google. Uh, I respect what they have done for the world. Um, yes, it is, uh, it is very complicated. 
but a lot of tech companies also take uh, a little bit uh, of the attitude of you're for us or you're against us. Uh, honestly, I'm indifferent to attitudes like this. Life is very long. It has very many important problems. Um, and I think diversity of opinion, diversity of product enriches us. Um, and so some things I just have to take with a grain of salt. So you've raised $77.5 million in funding for a $300 million valuation, which is still small compared to Google's more than $1 trillion market cap. And I should disclose that Scott Galloway, who is a co-host of my other podcast, is an investor. Actually, I told him about it, which was interesting. You just said everyone's used to using search. They naturally use Google and Google's become a verb over time. Um, why would the world need another search engine at all? So the funny thing here is people said that about Google when it was started. True. Remember, this was the time of Yahoo and Inkton and Ask Jeeves. And people it. said, really, another search engine? Why do we need it? So in a weird way, it's a little ironic. But let's look at the facts. Search is a business with one company having more than 90 plus percent market share. It's just not a healthy state for all of us for something that is a daily use function. And uh, you saw for yourself the dramatic consequences that it can have um, when there was this tiff between the Australian government and Google, where Google, which is basically a utility, said, well, we don't like your rules. We think we will stop serving search in Australia. So we think competition is good. And 20 years in, people are now beginning to understand that nothing is free. If a product is free, you are the product. And so we think the time for paying for these daily use functions has really come. Sure. You use the term, you know, you are the product, which I know whenever I say it, Silicon Valley people cringe. And you too probably cringe when I'd say it. And they'd go, that's not the case. That's not the case. They would argue with me um, that you're not. I have always maintained that uh, that everybody's a cheap date to all these internet companies and what you get is not the same as what they get in the trade. But nonetheless, um, no one's been able to take down Google and search. This is close as you can get to a natural monopoly on the internet. They have 92% market share. And Bing is next with about 2%. It used to be much higher. Um, you're using Bing. So what are your targets here? Our five-year aspiration is to have 5% of North America and Western Europe, which is a population of like 800 million people. So talk on the order of 50 million subscribers. That actually is a point where we can comfortably run all of the technology needed to create this amazing product. And people that have tried to compete with Google before essentially competed on Google's terms. Bing, as you know, is ad-supported. We started with Bing because we wanted a complete product to start with, but already, we know Explain that, what you're doing with Bing so regular people who don't think technology. What are you, you're, you're licensing search indexing from them. Explain what that means. What we did to begin with was we license web search from Bing. What that means is when we get a query from you as a user and customer, we send it to Bing without any user identifiable information, get the results back, and we show it to you. But what we realized is that when it came to creating better experiences for shopping queries, we could do so much different than what a commercial search engine can do. What we are in the process of doing thoughtfully, because we are still a 60-person startup, is building up those capabilities for running core web search ourselves. When we chatted about a year ago, you said to me, quote, we have to create a product that is truly better. Um, and of course, that's what you're talking about. There are other competitors, though. So let's go through some of the rivals who have tried to take on Google. And I want you to tell me why Neva is better than them. Now, let's start with the search engine DuckDuckGo. I've interviewed the CEO that has privacy protection and has ads. It has, I believe, uh, contextual ads. When if you search for a car, you get car ads and things like that. But it's also free. So explain 
what the difference is for you. Yeah, uh, Duck also gets its results, both web results as well as ads from Bing. What Duck does not do is keep any history about you um, within the company that Duck is. The instant you click on an ad, um, Bing knows about it, sort of the rest of the advertising world knows about it. Duck plays in the same ads ecosystem that everybody else plays in. And being ad-supported also means that every query on a search engine is a little conflict of interest tussle that's playing out. Should we serve Kara and show her the best result for her query? Or should we show an ad that might or might not be quite that relevant um, because we're going to make money showing the query? We have none of those things. We focus on sort of what's the best result for you. Um, for example, we let you already to index your personal data within the context of Neva. Um, this is mm -hmm. uh, so if you have data sitting on Google Drive, like I do, for example, you can search over that stuff all from the same search box. All of these things get facilitated by the core model. When you look for a product, we're just as happy to show you reviews as we are to show you where you can buy the product. So you don't care. We don't have that pressure of constantly surfacing advertising. Right. DuckDuckGo's CEO, Gabriel Weinberg, said, if you want the most impact to help people with privacy, you have to be free because Google will be free forever. How do you answer that? Uh, first of all, uh, even though Google is free, it is clear that lots of people want choice for a variety of reasons. Um, and these reasons vary. Uh, some of it is that uh, you know people are afraid of how large Google has become and the impact that it has on their lives. So people are looking for alternatives. This thesis that you have to be forever free mm -hmm. to compete, it's just another way that the ad industry as a whole um, uses to support itself. The newspaper that you read is not free. The water that comes in your house is not free. And many of these are low-cost, affordable products. And so this whole thing of things need to be free and, free and open internet, I've come to the conclusion, is basically a slogan for the ad industry. It's what we have all been convinced to believe I believe that there's more dignity, more value, more utility in a low-cost paid product with a company that's willing to live behind its principles. And one of the important aspects of Neva from early on is our commitment to high-quality content creators. You know, mm -hmm. you are in media, you know the trouble um, that like various quality creators have gone through over the last 20 years because of this false promise that ads were going to support their livelihoods. Um, they just have not. It's been a winner-take-all game, but it's been the Google and the Facebook and Amazon that have done exceptionally well. So we make an early commitment to publishers um, to actually support their monetization effort by sharing 20% of our top-line revenue. We just approach the problem very, very differently. Right. So at the beginning, you've just decided they're not, you know, bits and bites just to abuse. <laughs> That's what I used to say to, uh, to Larry Page. I'm like, you don't care if it's a cat or me. Like, I don't think you care at all. Like, as long as you can sell an ad. Quality there's... information matters a lot. Yeah. You know, if you think about it, it's pretty remarkable, right, that an entire industry of publishing somehow decided that not knowing who their users were, not knowing who their customers were, that purely serving up anonymous ads in a way that devalued their content was going to be the ultimate answer for their monetization. If you look back, you're like, this would never work. This would never make sense. Okay, Yahoo, that used to be big. It used to be big. What, what, what about them as a competitor? How do you look at them? I mean, Yahoo does search. Yahoo is still the front page of the internet for a ton of people. They get a lot of uh, attention. 
but they license essentially all of their search and ads uh, from Bing as well. So in that sense, they are unlikely to innovate on the core model. Okay. Brave search? Um, Brave is new. And uh, the model is very unclear, though. They uh, don't have a full index. And uh, at one level, they say they will be ad-supported because that is the overall business model of Brave. Well, it wants to be ad-free. Well, it says it won't track users or no IP addresses will be collected, and it wants to explore ad-free. That is correct. They promise anonymity, but the business model, in fact, is very unclear. They want to have an ad-supported version. They also want to have a subscription product. Um, you know, uh, to me, there is value in having a singular focus on creating that great product rather than trying mm-hmm. to be everything to everybody. So one last one, and actually two last ones. One is Apple, obviously. There's a rumored search engine. They have they've played around in this area. Um, obviously, you might be someone Apple might want to buy, for example. What do you, how do you look at their efforts? Uh, you know, Apple creates great products, uh, clearly very privacy-focused. To the best of my knowledge, they don't do what we do. And so my hope more than anything else is that we will actually be one of the search providers, that we are an option for iOS users. And our values are very, very aligned. This is the- Are you talking to them? Um, we have ongoing conversations. Obviously, one of the hard things, Kara, is um, similar to PageRank. If you're a search engine, uh, you are uh, you know, worthy of things like being one of the default search providers when you are large enough. But you don't get to be large enough unless you are one of the default search providers. Right. Um, <laughs> yes, and so how you that. break yeah. this conundrum is one of the hardest things that I'm dealing with, that Neva is dealing with as a company. They've just got to do it. They just got to let you yeah. On, yeah. on the thing. What makes you so confident people are willing to shell out for a 95-month for search since they've gotten used to being exploited for free, essentially? People search dozens of times per day. They know how important it is. They know how private it is. I've had friends tell me things like, uh, Sridhar, yesterday uh, I searched for how to be a good mom to a three-year-old because Mm -hmm. uh, my three-year-old was crying and I could not get her to stop. And so it's a deeply, deeply personal product that people use day in and day out. Uh, Similarly, at work, you know, if you're a software engineer, if you're a legal professional, if you're an accounting professional, the internet is this magical source of information. We are going to do other things like build connectors so that you're able to search over your data um, in Drive, in Slack, in Dropbox, and other things. That will be the niche. And over time, I think we'll be able to demonstrate the value. So for all uh, complaining about ads, though, Google does provide the searches for anybody who has an IP address, and it's subsidized by these consumers who do click on ads and are taking advantage of ads. Is The only way you're going to get privacy is privacy for a fee. It does mean people with income will get privacy and everyone else, their data gets trade. Although these companies do want the people who do have disposable income at the same time, not the people who don't. Yeah, I see this as a little bit of a false choice because, you know, we pay for a ton of things and we accept that uh, it is okay to pay for them. Uh, Clean water, most people pay for. Electricity, pretty much everybody pays for. There is no intention that these should be free. Um, As Neva scales, we do want to be thoughtful about having it be available. We want to make sure that, uh, you know, students can access it at lower cost or for free. We are thinking about how should nonprofits access Neva. But at the end of the day, paying a small fee for the service, it is the ultimate guarantee that you have that that service continues to be, um, you know, relevant and beholden to just you. 
So right now you're just doing English users, correct? U.S. users. Where the big market is, people can pay. It's not likely you're going to offer this uh, to a, you know, a Swahili-speaking farmer who earns less than $10 a day. They're stuck with whatever they get for free, correct? Yeah, we don't have any media plans for areas like Africa. Um, you know, as we scale, as we get more and more users, the actual cost of providing the service to any particular user comes down dramatically. And in our model, those benefits can go back to people rather than all of the benefits of scale being stuck with one provider. These are not completely new problems for us. You know, down the line, we'll figure those things out. Okay. So it's good timing, obviously, to launch Neva. Google's under some scrutiny. Um, group of state AGs recently filed an antitrust suit against Google over its Android App Store. And last year, the Justice Department filed an antitrust suit against Google, alleging monopolistic behaviors on search. Um, what do you make of the regulatory and antitrust measures? And presumably, they're good for Neva, correct? They're going to happen on a timescale that is not really going to help Neva because, as you know, like these things take years and we need to continue to succeed as a company sort of well before that. Meaning government's too slow to save that, right? No, these, these problems are very complicated and it's taken us 50 years to dig ourselves into this hole of businesses can do no wrong and antitrust is foundationally flawed. Um, and I think what you're seeing is a 50-year wake-up from the slumber that the government has gone into. But we have some amazing people that are now in charge of looking at these things, everybody from Lena Khan to Tim Wu, who know that we live in a different world when it comes to large and dominant companies. I put Google squarely in that mix. As you know, it's not illegal to be a monopoly, but it is illegal to take action that sort of cement the monopoly and prevent action. All I ask for as a product and a company CEO is the chance to be in front of you when you buy a new iPhone so that we can be a provider. All of those gates are shut right now. I'm just asking for a level playing field because I feel very confident that we can actually create a superior product that you will love, but we do need to have that exposure. If you're given the chance. If we are given the chance. Okay. So one of the, let's talk about the relation between paying for something and privacy. It's not like payments are privacy protection because Netflix, it's not sending information to advertisers, which is great, but it's still tracking what I'm watching, what I'm clicking, everything else. Um, what do you do with this information? Because you are also constantly collecting information that I'm interested in. That's right. So we are very clear that we are a private search engine. We are not an anonymous search engine. It's not the case that we don't know anything about what you're doing. And the example that's often useful is, uh, you know, most of us buy on Amazon and there is an orders page where they remember what we bought. Sometimes it's for a return. Sometimes it's to reorder something. We don't think of that as being odd. Um, we think about privacy the same way, which is what you do with Neva is between you and Neva. What we tell you is like, we're not going to take this information and package it and sell it to advertisers. And by the way, because we are a paid service, we can also turn off search history. We call it memory. It's perfectly fine for you to say, I don't actually want Neva to remember anything about what I did. We also have extremely conservative data policies. We keep search history by default for 90 days, but it's a literal flick of one switch to say, I don't want that either. And we're very careful to not ask for permissions like background location, because we think background location is truly evil. There's no company that needs to know what you're doing every second of the day. And when we use third-party services, for example, we make sure that we do things like blur location um, and remove last octets from IP addresses. So things cannot be personally identified as you. 
So there's lots of ways people do uh, preserve their privacy. I know I've tried to do a million things all the time besides not allowing Google to sign me in and things like that, although it's sometimes impossible if you're using their mail. Um, but there's VPNs. There are certain web browsers like Chrome that have an incognito mode. So does Safari uh, to protect privacy. Ad blockers already exist. What, what does it need you for if it can do these things, go into incognito mode? Explain to people why that might not be protection enough. So first of all, Incognito mode is one of the worst names ever. Incognito mode merely says that the browser is not going to remember what you typed in after you close the browser. The sites that you're interacting with get your IP address. Um, And so search engines have that history. Other people that are keying stuff off of IP address have that stuff. So incognito is only vaguely related to privacy, as in the browser that is sitting on your phone or your computer will not remember what you did after you close the window. Our foundational thesis is that we can create a better product by not having to deal with ads, by not trying to exploit you. So ad blockers just, that that isn't good enough, you, you don't think. It's not enough to be able to knock an ad blocker on or a VPN or whatever. Uh, so ad blockers, block ads, they don't create a better product for you. You need, you need like an actual company to visualize what that product is going to be and then go create it for you. This is my point. Search without ads is not the same as Neva, which is much more about what is a great product for you? What is a product that works for you? So the same year you left Google in 2018, the company moved its old motto, don't be evil, to the end of the code of conduct. Is Google's and the general online advertising model evil? Or does it lead to evil outcomes, I guess? It is set up in such a way that there is uh, uncontrolled flow of all information. I don't think any of us realizes that a visit to a, a reputable site literally means hundreds of companies know every single action that we took. They are free to package it up however they want. We've also been sold on this myth that things like ad ID, which is the unique identifier on your mobile phone, is not personally identifying. That is nonsense. There was an article in the New York Times that says like you can easily translate that to mm-hmm. an actual person. So I think we are living on top of this falsehood that advertising does not come with cost. And so from that perspective, I think the falsehood is bad. I think we need to have more choices and more transparency about how these things work. As I said, we are fed this myth that a free and open internet is the one that enables universal access. No, it is low-cost products. It is clear business models that are going to bring progress forward. Tech created this myth that products need to be free so it can enrich itself. It did not create this myth truly with the idea of serving you. You know, I've had Facebook people tell me, but Facebook being ad-supported means that Facebook can be free in Ecuador. Yeah, and I've heard. You're like, yeah. Really? That being the foundational reason for why a very large corporation needs to be free is as unbelievable as it gets. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Apple CEO Tim Cook, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Sridhar Ramaswamy after the break.
As a global leader in experiential education, Drexel University encourages students to both gain knowledge and find new ways to turn that knowledge into action. Drexel is proud to be one of 39 private institutions in the nation to achieve recognition by the Carnegie Classification of Institutions of Higher Education as an R1 research institution, affirming this Philadelphia University's commitment to discovery and innovation. Experience what education can be at drexel.edu. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are hand-picked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock-full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. Okay, so right now when I'm pulling down, for example, my search on Safari, I use Safari, I don't use Chrome. Uh, the choices I get are Google, Yahoo, Bing, DuckDuckGo, and uh, Ecosia. Ecosia. Yep. But I can't get you, correct? Unless I go to a separate site. That's right. This is the earlier conversation that we had about doors and gates needing to be open. Um, you know, building enough credibility Um, building enough scale that we are actually worthy of a choice in that list is going to be a really important thing for Neva. Well, I don't like any of these choices, I got to say. I don't want, which one should I pick? I have Google's the default, by the way. Apple has a really lucrative deal with Google. It makes a lot of money from it where they make Google the default over Yahoo being DuckDuckGo or others. I suppose DuckDuckGo is the best choice of this gang here, I I suspect. Um, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, (laughs) Neva. Go over yeah, to Neva, but it's, would, that step, it's that friction step that I take, right? right, that I have to take for you guys. And that's what uh, diminishes you in a lot of ways. You know, these are large corporations, and we have to earn our right to be there. And this is why making the product itself more and more compelling as time passes is what is going to give us the right to be one of these providers. It's what gives us motivation as a team. Sure. But right now, I I like that you hesitated. You wouldn't let me pick any of them. (laughs) It's like they're all terrible, I guess. Um, But one of the things that I want from Neva, if I'm going to do that frictional jump, right, and use the Neva search engine, is quality, obviously. Um, I did searches for bookstore, and it was giving me first page results in Louisiana and Quebec. Um, The same search in Google. Obviously, they know exactly where I am. Um, So if you're going to get me to move to another place and also pay money it has to become something that's super useful to me in terms of quality of search. 100%. Um, areas like local are some of the most difficult areas in which to get quality right. So a lot of early Neva users send us a lot of feedback. It is what has helped us make things better. I'm not claiming we're perfect, but we are rapidly catching up on the metrics by which you would evaluate a local search. So you sure. actually get high quality results. So Google's index, though, is enormous. The British Competition Authorities estimated Google had as many as 600 billion web pages in its index, or about three times more than Microsoft. And Google has, as you said, huge teams handling search quality. 
how long will it take for you all and others to scale up to that? Or is it just like they're Mount Everest and it's impossible to do so? So again, as uh, I used to run this team, uh, the crawl team, and uh, you know the utility beyond say the top 50-ish billion is sort of on the minimal side. That's like saying, who cares about the second page of Google, correct? That's what you're essentially saying. That's right, that's right. Once you get beyond the top 50, 60 billion pages, there's not, you know, the incremental value is substantially less. So honestly, I worry less about things like the size of the index or our ability to actually serve up that data. It is more the data that is needed to train the machine learning algorithms I joke to people that a search engine roughly says, oh, the best answer for a query is the one that everyone else said was the best answer for the query. Is that, is that search humor? That's, that you is search humor. Search, is that what search people do, make little search jokes? It's like a search popularity contest. Uh, you show what everyone says is the, is, is the right result. But by the way, page rank is that. Mm-hmm. The most popular yeah. sites are the ones that other sites say are the most popular ones. Um, it's a very similar kind of concept. So it is that scale of users being So you don't care to- how big they are. Size does not matter is essential. Size of the index does not really matter. I am making a joke here, you know, just having watched all these rocket launches, you know. <laughs> anyway, how does Neva's algorithm filter out misinformation? Obviously, President Biden recently said that Facebook is, quote, killing people. I think he could probably apply it to YouTube also. Uh, he's since sort of backed off the claim a little bit, but not quite. Um, what did you think of that? And how do you deal with misinformation? Because that's not been a huge problem on Google itself search, much more so on YouTube and other places. So first of all, this is less of a problem, as you point out, in search, primarily because like domain-level signals, site-level signals don't really change all that much. Unlike social media in which like someone can create an account and start following a lot of people and posting a bunch of misinformation, it is much harder for like nytimes.com to show up uh, one fine day. It's been around. So the history really helps search engines. Um, And that's been a known technique, which is, especially for fast-moving events, even Google search will back off to older, more reliable sources. So it's it's less of a problem for us. But we are also actively thinking about how do we surface additional labels, additional information that helps users just show, does the newspaper or does this site have an editorial policy? Do they have a policy for corrections? Will they clearly separate out opinion pieces versus actual news. So these are things that we want to make available for our users. So we give a little badge that lets you decide, hey, how reliable is this information? As you know, my worry is that uh, people can actually tell between what is opinion versus what, you know, what is actually news. And these are simple things that we think we can actually contribute a lot by making this very clear. I I very vividly remember a discussion I had with Larry Page about this. And he was like, it doesn't matter. We'll serve up everything. I said, I think you're so dangerous. I can't even tell you. Like, and he's like, people should be able to see what they want to see. And I said, I just, I, I, and I stopped talking. I was like, I didn't stop talking, but I was like, okay. There was just nothing I could argue with him about. So when you're personalizing news providers, um, do you create a news echo chamber, though, at the same time? Like, I did get Larry's point about being able to hear more voices. I think search engines pretending that everybody is equal is another way of saying that there is only one truth. It's their truth. We think it is much more honest to be able to say, we will give you the tools that you need to create your point of view. I mean, let's face it, Kara. like different people live in different worlds because we are driven by the information that we consume. And so how we look at the world is unique. 
we want to bring these additional tools that give you clarity on what you're looking at um, and not decide that in some way we are the arbiters of absolute truth. Um, one of the ways you could compete against Google is through, through relationships with content partners. Google's been terrible at sharing revenues with publishers, not just Google, but Facebook, everybody else, news outlets like CNN, The Guardian, Philadelphia Inquirer. And it's, of course, these, these are all companies that have suffered, not CNN necessarily, but a lot of these newspaper companies has. The company said last year it would pay some publishers a billion dollars over three years for content. I think it's that's just like charity in some ways. It's a drop in the bucket um, for someone like Google. How can you win with publishers? First of all, by looking at this as a shared experience that we create together. A search engine is only as good as the information that it is able to surface for its users. As I said, this idea that ads can support great content on the internet, in my mind, simply has not turned out to be true. But part of the difficulty that all of these players have is they have no framework by which they can share revenue. Of course, they also liberally borrow information when they do things like featured snippets. When you take big chunks of a page and show it right within the context of a search engine. Uh, so early on, we both made a commitment to sharing revenue under a little bit of a framework where we said, hey, if we use more than what can be considered fair use for a piece of content um, and show it within the search experience, then obviously we are pre-revenue, um, but we said we will share 20% of our top line with folks that help us create a better experience. And we've been in conversations um, with a lot of folks after, you know, Koran Medium signed on. So I want to finish up talking about what does the future of content then look like? This is a group of people that have been battered. Obviously, there's subscription, paywall, and ad-supported media. What does the future of content look like from your perspective? I mean, content obviously falls into many different categories. I mean, content for entertainment seems to have a really bright future with ad-supported models. You know, obviously things like uh, things like TikTok. I yeah. honestly care. And streaming. Streaming is subscription. Yeah, yeah. I care quite a bit more both about news uh, as in like fresh observations about the world, mm -hmm. um, but also about just quality information. There are lots of things that we want to know, everything from how do I clean a sink really, really well? Or how do I get rid of water stains from something else? They are very, very poorly served by the current ads model. So at one level, when it comes to things like news, I definitely see packages emerging um, where you're able to say, I can get access to 10, 12 sites with a, um, with, with, with a single subscription. You know, I sometimes joke about Jim Barksdale's uh, claim that the only way to make money is by bundling and unbundling. So he was the CEO of Netscape, who got trounced by um, yep. Microsoft, of course, uh, which is kind of an interesting comparison to, to what you're doing and stuff. Um, but we talked earlier about Google putting its motto, don't be about the end of the code of content. What would be your motto then? We don't quite have a motto for the company, but uh, what we are and what we will be for the long foreseeable future is this as free private subscription search engine. That is not as catchy. You know that. You gotta come up with something. I'll work harder on the motto. Absolutely. <laughs> search me, but don't touch me. I don't know. I don't know something like that. Anyway, Sridhar, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This is a lovely conversation. You know, listeners who want to sign up for Neva in the US can go to <laughs> Neva.com. You're gonna do an ad. <laughs> That's okay. I'll let you do it. Thank you. 
Way is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blakeney Schick, Matt Kwong, and Daphne Chen. Edited by Naima Raza and Paula Schumann. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair and Michelle Harris. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Lyriel Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you in incognito mode, and we really mean it, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Listening.